Well, good morning. Uh, before I begin, I want to say a quick word about youth ministry here at Branch of Hope. Um, I have been blessed to provide oversight for the youth ministry. Jonathan Ortiz has stepped down, and he is going to be a volunteer leader. So he's not removing, he's not leaving. Uh, he is actually amazing uh, what he's been able to do. But we have a bunch of new youth leaders and I want to invite every parent, hopefully you've received an email that we uh, sent earlier this week, uh, every parent who wants to come, you're going to need an RSVP to, for tomorrow night, uh, and uh, I'm going to do kind of like a, a town hall meeting of sorts for the, the parents, and then uh, the kids are going to have a normal youth group. Uh, but we're calling it Catalyst, and we want to, we're kind of really revamping it. So we want to encourage you, if you have kids in the youth, we want to invite the parents to come, but we need to know so that we have enough food for you, because food is good. Um, so with that, um, let's get to the message. Hear now God's holy and perfect word. <clears throat> Ruth chapter 3. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See his winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she laid his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize her. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Thus far the reading of God's holy and perfect word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before you, Lord, we ask that you would give us eyes to see your word, the truth in your word, the challenges in your word, 
that we would not leave today without being moved to be challenged. Lord, we need you. I need you right now, Lord. And we ask that you would fill our hearts with your glory, fill our minds with a knowledge of you on how much you deeply love us. For you are a good God and a good Father. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So whenever we say thus far the reading of God's holy word, um, I'm sure many of you guys know this, we say that because everything that I just read from God's word is perfect. Everything that I say afterwards, not so much. So test that, challenge it. If there's something that you're like, ah, I'm not so sure about what he said, I welcome that in the Q&A, and if I need to be corrected, please correct me. So recently, we had the pleasure of buying a movie called Boys in the Boat. You guys seen that movie? Anybody seen that movie? It kind of seems like maybe a, a raunchy movie title, but it's actually a really good movie. For those who haven't seen it, this movie takes place in the 1930s during the Great Depression. It follows the story of a young man named Joe Rance, uh, who was on Cleveland Lake and was attending Washington University. In order to secure his tuition, because he had absolutely no money, this was during the Great Depression, uh, he decides to join an eight-man rowing team, or at least tries to try out for it, uh, which was the most watched sport of the day. Now they would, and you're kind of like, well, I, my context for watching sports is football. Baseball, you see these huge coliseums, and, and some of them don't have the amount of people that would actually go to this two-mile stretch and watch these people row. About 100,000 people, even more, would watch these rowers. So it was the most watched. It was broadcast on the radio for all to hear. And what I find so interesting with this story is that these eight young men, this true story, traversed the competitions in the United States, winning in decided fashion, and they're placed up against the world's elite at the center stage of the 1936 Olympic Games in Germany. And you actually see Hitler overseeing them and kind of going, Germany's going to win. How scared must these teens have been? When they, when they stepped into their boat, going against these grown men who were the fastest in their countries. Fear no doubt gripped them as they grabbed their oars, looked across the landscape as other boats were filled with Italians, with Germans, with Englishmen, along with a few others. And what obviously makes this story so amazing is that they won the gold medal in that year of the eight-man rowing. But when a journalist, or actually when his grandson asked Joe Rance, which you kind of see in the beginning, you know, what he loved about the eight-man rowing competition, he replied simply, there wasn't eight men. There was one. There was a small band of brothers that took on the world. Now, I'm not suggesting that Ruth, Naomi, and Boaz were like this eight-man rowing team per se, but we can kind of catch a glimpse of what they came up against. And I think it's, it's fascinating to me because when we read Scripture, we read stories, and maybe we've read things over and over and over again, we become desensitized to it. We don't realize these are actually real people struggling, fearful. But before we get to the fact that fear grips all of us before we do something daring, I want to go do a review of chapter 1 and 2 really quick. Chapter 1 hits us with the bitter providence of God in the life of Naomi. She's left her land and lost her husband. She's lost her sons and one of her daughters-in-law. 
But there was a sweet providence to the background of Naomi's life as well. The famine breaks in Judah, and Naomi could go home. Now, as I noted in an earlier message, that was simply the hand of God moving very intimately in the life of Naomi. Ruth committed herself to care for Naomi, which was a huge blessing. And all the while, a kinsman named Boaz was preserved as a husband for Ruth to raise up an heir for the family name and property. But the chapter ends with Naomi overwhelmed with her losses. She says, the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Many of us can feel the same way. When we're in the throes of discouragement, fear begins to reign in our hearts. Fear of the unknown or fear of the known that we're going to have to go through, we're going to have to face. And I feel like Naomi was kind of akin at this point in Naomi's life to the man at Bethesda in John chapter 5. He was a man who had been an invalid for 38 years, and his interaction with Jesus Christ is obvious in that he felt like Naomi. The bitter providence hand, the hand of God, was hard on him, to say the least. He had no hope. And we can read in John chapter 5, verses 2 through 9, Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, listen to his response. This man says, Jesus says, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered, sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. He's listless. I mean, he has absolutely no hope. So enters Jesus Christ and he says to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now you can kind of read his hopelessness, but then Christ enters into the hopelessness. So we're kind of seeing a little bit of that happening in chapter 2 of Ruth. The mercy of God breaks through bright. It's bright enough for even Naomi to see it. We meet Boaz, a man of wealth, a man of God, and a relative of Naomi's husband. We see Ruth taking refuge under the wings of the provision of Boaz in a foreign land being led mercifully by God to the field that Boaz owned to glean. And we see Naomi recover from her long night of despondency as she exults in God in chapter 2, verse 20. The Lord's kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. So chapter 2 overflows with hope. Boaz is a godly man in his business dealings and in his personal relationships. We get that from uh, verse 4 and 10 through 13. But Ruth is a God-dependent woman under the wings of God, dependent upon God. Naomi is now a God-exalting woman under the sovereignty of God. All the darkness of chapter 1 is gone. God has turned her mourning into dancing. The Almighty has dealt bitterly with me, has given way to, His kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. The lesson of chapters 1 and 2, I think somewhat, is seek refuge under the wings of God, even when things seem to be lost. And at just the right time, God will set you up on the eagle's wings. You can see some spectacular views. So when we get to chapter 3, the phrase I want you guys to keep in mind as we go through chapter 3 is intentional righteousness. The question which chapter 3 seeks to answer is, what does a godly man, a God-dependent young woman, 
and a God-exalting older woman do when they are filled with hope in the sovereign goodness of God? And the answer is that they manifest an intentional righteousness. Now, by righteousness, I mean a zeal for doing what is good and right, a zeal for doing what is appropriate when God is taken into account as sovereign and merciful. Now, by intention, I mean that there is a strategic, purposeful planning. See, there's a passive righteousness which simply avoids evil when it presents itself. But strategic righteousness takes the initiative and dreams of how to make things better. It's kind of like when you are around friends or coworkers who may do some kind of devious things, maybe beckon you to follow suit. Passive righteousness says no when faced with these temptations. Passive righteousness says no to the extra drink that someone just poured you. No, I don't need to do that. Passive righteousness says, no, I don't need to listen to that music. I don't need to do it. It says no to loading up that computer screen when faced with temptation. I don't need to go there. It says no to buying that extra thing for your house or your wardrobe that you really don't need. It says no. But intentional righteousness is something altogether different. It's making plans for righteousness. Setting yourself up for success rather than avoiding temptation and failure. Both are good, both are important, but I want to talk about intentional righteousness. One of the lessons I learned from Ruth chapter 3 is that hope helps us dream. Hope helps us think of ways to do good. Hope helps us pursue our ventures with integrity and virtue. It's hopelessness that makes people think that they have to lie, that they have to steal, They have to seize illicit pleasures for the moment. But hope, based on the confidence that a sovereign God is for us, gives us a thrilling impulse, which I call intentional righteousness. We see it in Naomi in chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. We see it in Ruth in 6 through 9 and Boaz 10 through 15. And the chapter closes again with Naomi full of confidence in the power and goodness of God. But I would ask you guys... What kills hope? What is it that destroys our motivation to pursue righteousness and to trust in the Lord? Because really, that's the crux of what I want to go over this morning. Because we oftentimes fail, don't we? Do we have the courage to embrace failure? To understand that each setback is not a blockade, but a stepping stone towards our aspirations. And if those aspirations are for the glory of God, do we really think that anything can stand in our way? See, fear kills dreams. Fear kills hope. Fear puts people in the hospital. Fear ages us. It's fear that can hold us back from doing within ourselves that which we know we are capable of doing But fear will always paralyze us. Most people will continue to live quiet lives of desperation. You've heard that before. Never attempting anything significant in their life for the glory of God. We might try and do something that we really want to do one time. Never attempting anything significant. But when we fail, when we try something significant... 
we go back to doing what we are comfortable with. I tried it. I tried it. We tell ourselves and other people that it, it won't work. I tried it. It doesn't work. I think of struggling marriages. I think of marriages that are just like, you know what, I just give up. You know, and, and, and sometimes they'll come with counseling, and I'll talk to them. And I'll kind of give them, hey, here's, here's a strategy on how to plan, to repair, to love each other well. And inevitably, I'll have one of them go, I tried. I tried to do what you told me. It didn't work. Like it's a wand. I need a wave. So they've spent 20 plus years in a negative way, and all of a sudden they do one act that's positive, and they expect change. And then they give up. I'm not, I, I tried. I give up. Many people hope these great things will happen to them, but they have lost the hope and drive and determination to see these things through, no matter the cost. Ruth and Naomi had every opportunity to fear, to be paralyzed, to be frail, but instead of sitting back and merely hoping, they acted. They moved from the theory of trusting in God to placing their faith and trust in him no matter the cost, moving, acting intentionally. See, the path of these women's success and even Boaz's success in this story wasn't a straight walk into the sunset on flower beds of ease. It was a journey punctuated with challenges that asks, do you really want this? Do you really believe God or is he just a good idea when you're all by yourself? And that's a question we have to ask ourselves. Do you really believe God? Do you really want this? So let's look at Naomi's strategy. Ruth chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash therefore and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man, man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say I will do. Two things stand out to me about Naomi's strategy here in verses 1 through 5. One is that she had a strategy. And the second is that what that strategy was. The sheer fact that Naomi had a strategy teaches us something. The concept of fear amidst Naomi and Ruth is compelling to me because they were real people struggling, even with how, when their next meal was going to be. But they didn't sit down in a heap feeling sorry for themselves. People who feel like victims don't make plans. But I'm pretty sure Scripture says, because of Christ, that we are more than conquerors. When was the last time that you set out and made plans for righteousness? As long as Naomi was oppressed, as long as she could only say, the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me, she conceived of no strategy for the future. One of the terrible effects of fear and depression is the inability to move purposefully and hopefully into the future. 
Strategies of righteousness, making plans for it, are the overflow of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ alone. When Naomi awakens in 2.20 to the kindness of God, her hope comes alive, and the overflow is intentional righteousness. She is concerned about finding Ruth a place of care and security, and she makes a plan. Psalm 42.5 says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation. One of the reasons we must help each other hope in God is that only hopeful churches plan and strategize. This is akin to the boys who were in the boat that I made reference to. They were in the boat together. They were much more powerful together. Churches that feel no hope develop a maintenance mentality and just go through the motions year in and year out. But when a church feels the sovereign kindness of God hovering overhead and moving in their lives, hope starts to thrive, and righteousness ceases to be simply the avoidance of evil and becomes active and strategic in our community. But Naomi's strategy was kind of odd. It's very weird. Naomi took the initiative to find a husband for Ruth. But the strategy she comes up with is really strange, to say the least. She says in verse 2 that Boaz is a kinsman. Therefore, he is a likely candidate for Ruth's husband. That way, the family name and the family inheritance will stay in the family, according to Hebrew custom. So Naomi's aim is clear, to win for Ruth a godly husband and secure a future and to preserve the family line. So she tells Ruth to make herself as clean and as attractive as possible. Take note. Go to the, th the threshing floor of Boaz, and after he has lain down for the evening, sneak in, lift up his cloak, and lie down at his feet. Everybody, I would think, when you're reading this, including Ruth, probably had to have been thinking, and just where do you think that's going to lead? To which Naomi gives the extraordinary answer in verse 4, he's going to tell you what to do. What was Naomi's motive? One thing is clear and one thing is not very clear. It's clear that Naomi's way of thinking and trying to get Boaz was to marry Ruth. It's not clear why she would go about doing it like this. And I hope to unpack that. Why not a conversation with Boaz instead of this highly suggestive and risky midnight maneuver? Was Naomi fearful of the possibility that Boaz might drive Ruth away in moral indignation? Or that he might give in to the temptation and have sexual relations with her? Did Naomi want that to happen? Or was Naomi so sure of Boaz and Ruth that she knew that they would treat each other with purity and integrity? That Boaz would be deeply moved by this outright offer of Ruth in marriage and would avoid any sort of relationship until all was duly solemnized by the, the city elders. The author doesn't come out right and say it and tell us why Naomi chose this way. It's kind of explicit, tempting strategy to win Boaz to her. But there's going to be a clue later. But for now, the writer seems to want us to feel this sense of suspense, ambiguity. Just where did Ruth lie down? The Hebrew is just as ambiguous as the English. 
What would Boaz tell her to do? See, whatever Naomi's motive was, the situation is one that could lead us into seeing this passionate and illicit scene of potential intercourse or into a stunning scene of purity, integrity, and self-control. So then we get to Ruth's strategy. In Ruth chapter 3, verse 6 through 9, says, So she goes down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. It's never happened to me. Thankfully, actually. We'll move on. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Now, let's just stop and think. Now, I said this before. Part of the problem when we read scripture is that we take it for granted. Perhaps we've read the story so many times that we are, like I said, desensitized to it. But ladies, tell me, if this were you, would you be frightened by Naomi's plan? Great idea, mom-in-law. I mean, it's bizarre. At least to me, as I read this, and I'm putting myself in here, I probably shouldn't do that, but I was like, this is crazy. I think there would have been some fear and trepidation in Ruth's life, in her eyes behind it. She's like, what are, okay. She's not some Marvel hero, superpowers, confident. She was a beautiful woman who was desperate. But desperation does not always breed courage. At times, desperation can lead to recklessness. So in verse 5, she had said that she would do all of Naomi's instructions. But notice Ruth does more. Naomi had said that Boaz would tell Ruth what to do. But before that happens, Ruth tells Boaz why she was there. She's laying at his feet, under his cloak. He awakens and says, who are you? This was perhaps the moment when Ruth was at a crossroads, do I follow through with the plan or do I buckle under the pressures of potential failure and stop? Do I let fear rob me? She answers with words unprompted by Naomi. She says, I am Ruth, your maidservant. Spread your skirt over or spread your wings over your maidservant for you are next of kin. Ruth is not merely Naomi's pawn. She has gone willingly, and now she takes the initiative to make clear to Boaz why she is there. You are next of kin, or literally, she says, you are the redeemer, the one who can redeem our inheritance and our family line from being lost. I want you to fill that role. I want to be your wife. She doesn't say it outright. In fact, she's a lot less direct, maybe more enticing. She says, spread your wings over me. Now, whether Boaz takes this to be an offer of outright sexual relations or something more subtle and profound will depend on his estimate of Ruth's character. Fornication was wrong in the Old Testament, according to Leviticus chapter 19 and Deuteronomy 21, just as it was in the New Testament and is today, according to Matthew 15. Spread your wings over me, she says. There are two things besides Ruth's character which suggest something subtle and profound, in fact, happening right now. One is this, the only place I could find in the Old Testament 
where the phrase spreading the wings occurs in relation to lovers is found in Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 8. God is talking and he's describing Israel as a young maiden that he took for his wife. When I passed by you, it says, when I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord, and you became mine. If this is any indication of what Ruth wanted from Boaz, the request went far beyond intimate relations. She was saying, in effect, I would like you to be the one whom you pledge your faithfulness and with whom you make a marriage covenant. But I think there's something more to it than that. And this is the second indication of this subtlety, this beauty and depth here. When Ruth said, spread your wings over me, this idea is the same word in Ezekiel 16.8. It's used only in one other place in Ruth. In the key verse from last message in 2.12, where Boaz says to Ruth, the Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. But what we saw last time was that Boaz was God's agent to reward Ruth. He gave her free access to his field and protection from the young men, and water from the well. Ruth had said to Boaz, Why have I found favor in your eyes? And Boaz says, Because you have come to take refuge under the wings of God. So here's what I think is going on in chapter 3. Ruth has told Naomi about these words that Boaz said to her. And the more they ponder them at night, maybe they're like kind of you know, sleeping in the same area, talking, whatever they were doing at night, because they were probably talking. Hey, how'd your day go? Oh, it's cool. It's cool. Got some green. I don't know what they were talking about. But they were talking. You won't believe what this one man said to me. And they're thinking, well, why, was he, why would he say that? Interesting. Why would he say that? What could it mean? They were hoping. No longer ruled by fear. They were hoping. You see, what Boaz really means when he says this to Ruth in chapter 2, because you've taken refuge under the wings of God, you are the kind of woman I want to cover with my wings. I don't, don't want you to misunderstand when I say this is not what the writers of the romance movies would say today. Hey, I want to cover you with my wings. I can think of a lot of other things to say, like you complete me. It's not easy for an older man to express love to a younger woman. Boaz did it with deeds of kindness and subtle words of admiration. He said he admired her for coming under the wings of God, but he acted as though she were already under his wings, and he waited. And in the course of time, Naomi and Ruth hit upon a response just as subtle, just as profound. Ruth will come to him in his sleep in the grain field, where he has taken her under his care, and she will say yes. But she will say it with an action just as subtle and profound as the action and words of Boaz. She puts herself under his wing, so to speak. And when he wakes, everything hangs on this moment, with this one sentence, whether Ruth has interpreted Boaz correctly. Imagine how fast her pulse was racing at this time when Boaz awoke. Of course she was scared. You cannot tell me she wasn't frightened. 
I mean, it's crazy to think about. The Bible is so wonderful in its verse and style. We've got to put ourselves there. Then the all-important words, I am Ruth. Spread your wings over your maidservant. There had to have been an immense silence or intense one for a moment while Boaz let himself kind of believe that this magnificent woman really understood, had so profoundly understood what he was trying to do. A middle-aged man in love with a young widow whom he discreetly calls my daughter, uncertain whether her heart might be going after the younger men, communicating the best he could that he wants to be God's wings for her. I see this all the time. It's like, hey, um, I'm interested in you, but I don't want you to know that I'm interested in you, right? If Boaz was middle-aged, successful, godly, what had he thought about his life up to that point? You ever think about that? Did he feel like God would not allow him to have a wife? Did he struggle with the thoughts of unworthiness? Like, God, I've been doing all these things, and I don't have a wife. Did he struggle with that? God, have you forgotten me? Maybe God passed him over. He no doubt longed for a wife, wanted one, but never was able to be blessed in that regard. So when Ruth happens to arrive literally at his doorstep, was he afraid? I remember calling Kelly for the first time on the phone. You guys remember what that was like, right? Calling people instead of text messaging them. It's archaic, but it worked. Even though I was confident that she liked me, I was way too confident, I was way too arrogant, I was still so nervous in asking her out. I had to work up enough courage to do it. Knowing she could easily say no, she should have said no. It was terribly scary, but I'm, if I had not done that, I would have missed out on the most amazing woman in the world. So now we see a young widow gradually reading between the lines, finally ready to risk an interpretation by coming in the middle of the night to take refuge under the wings of his garment. That's powerful. Anybody who thinks that a loose woman and a finagling mother are, are at work here are on another planet. All is subtle. All is beautiful. All is righteous. All is strategic. Then we get to Boaz's strategy. To hear what he says in the right way, we have to remember it is midnight. They are under the stars. He is looking down into the face of the woman he loves, covered with his own cloak. Do you think his heart was racing? Could it be, Father, that you're giving me this most amazing opportunity to be with the woman that I so desperately love? Boaz had to have been afraid. Verse 10 through 11 states, And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. It comes this word of magnificent righteousness and self-control. He says, According to custom, Ruth, there's a person who's actually closer who has prior claim to you than I do. And I'm not going to be able to proceed. I'm not going to be able to go forward with this until that is already fleshed out. Things are settled with him. 
The stars are beautiful overhead. It's midnight. He loves her. She loves him. They're alone. She's under his cloak. And he stops. He stops it for the sake of righteousness and does not touch her. What a man. But what a woman. Listen, the mood of American life today, if it feels good, do it. And forget about your guilt-producing, puritanical principles of self-control, chastity, and faithfulness. But I say to you, if the stars are shining in their beauty, and your blood is thudding like a hammer, and you are safe in the privacy of your own place, stop for the sake of righteousness. Let the morning dawn on your purity. Don't be like the world. Be like Boaz. Be like Ruth. Profoundly in love, subtle and perceptive in communication, powerful in self-control, committed to righteousness. And what happens? Well, we'll see next time that I exhort. But you know the ending of the story. Boaz marries Ruth. God blesses them so much that they are in the line of Jesus Christ. That's crazy to me. That's crazy. Fear could have made both of them have FOMO. This idea of fear of missing out. What if I honor God and I don't get the girl? What if I honor God and I don't get the guy? That nothing happens the way I want. Fear could have held them back. But I ask yourself, and you have to ask yourselves this, what is the benefit? What's the benefit of allowing fear to hold us back? What's the benefit of giving up on ourselves? Of not stepping out in life? Of not taking life on? What's the plus in that for our lives as believers in an almighty God? What's the good in being held back of not stepping out in faith? Because I don't want to end up in a nursing home. <laughs> sitting on my deathbed. Wondering what would have happened if I had more courage. I don't want my dying thought to be, I wish I would have tried harder. I wish I would have had more faith. I wish I would have trusted God more. I wish, I wish, I wish. This passage should be a catalyst in our lives to challenge us to stop being comfortable in our faith with our pursuit of God and make sacrifices to get uncomfortable, to reach out to those who need it, to spend time in the things that we know God is calling us to, to do it and don't let anything stop us. Even though the world is screaming at us to stop, even though our flesh will war against us to stop, even though the enemy will lie to us to stop, we speak to the devil the truth of who we are in Christ. We have a Redeemer who lives. Yes, Boaz was in the position to redeem them physically. But only Christ is in that position to redeem us spiritually. You have one who went to the cross for you. You have one who reconciled us to the God of the universe. We are children of God, a royal priesthood. A loved man or woman, boy or girl, teenager, who has everything in life for godliness and impact. Each one of us is rare. 
Each one of us is unique. Each one of us is in a class by ourselves. Each one of us has our own voice. Each one of us has our own fingerprints. Each one of us has thoughts that no one else has. Believe when everything falls apart because this is our life that God is calling us to. A life of faith and trust in an almighty God. We need to be fearless to not wake up letting life play us. We need to plan and be intentional in our righteousness. So, are you going to be the one that holds you back? We cannot be seduced by the easy path. We choose the hard one. Choose the one that seems impossible. Choose the one of faith. We choose the one in which God will get the glory and the one in which we will not. And I go back to the man at Bethesda who had no hope. He had no hope, and yet Christ intervened in his life and did the impossible. Even though he has, was no doubt afraid of failure, of getting his hopes up yet again, Christ comes and changes everything. Has Christ come into your life, awakened you to the truth of the gospel, the gospel that says, though you are not good enough, on your own, you have a redeemer, a kinsman redeemer, who says that he loves us enough to die for us. Enough to reconcile us to God by taking upon our sin and destroying the eternal effects of it on the cross through faith alone in him. We serve and are loved by a God who lives today. And he is calling each one of us to trust him more, to step out in faith more, and to make intentional plans for righteousness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this morning, Lord. Thank you for your word. There's so much more that can be said here. But Father, I pray that you would move on our hearts to encourage us to step out in faith, Lord, it is not a blind step when we have a sovereign God who has already fulfilled everything for us and done everything for us. What are we afraid of, God? We believe so many lies of this world, of our flesh, and of the devil. I pray that the truth of who you are will pierce that veil. And challenge us to begin making plans, taking back ground in our marriages, taking back ground in our relationships, taking back ground in our neighborhoods, taking back ground in our communities and in our country and in this world. You used such a small band of apostles to change this world, Lord because your spirit was with them. Are we confident that you are with us? Help us to move from mere belief and a knowledge of you to actually trusting in you. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.